OCBC, and yeah, we're glad, glad, glad you're here today. Awesome, it's a good weekend. Um, we're gonna get right into things today. We, uh, as a church, have been going through uh, the book of Genesis, looking at the lives of the patriarchs. They are lives of faith. We have to remind ourselves of that from time to time because that also, time to time, they don't live up to the faith that God is calling them to. And, uh, and so that's, that's what we're going to be continuing in today. But before we get into that, I also want to welcome anybody who's new. Welcome. Glad you're here. If you've got kids, just want to let you know they're welcome to stay uh, with us here uh, in the service. We, uh, we also have a welcome lounge outside that we stream the services into. So if they get noisy or need to walk around a little bit, you can walk out there. We also have a nursery down the stairs as well um, and a children's program for ages uh, for grade school age. So however you want to handle that, we're just glad you're here. I'm going to read um, Genesis chapter 18 and then we're going to, uh, to, to look into it for a little bit today. Genesis chapter 18, uh, there's Pew Bibles, uh, there's some blue Bibles in the, in the pew in front of you. Uh, Genesis is the first book, so it should be pretty easy to find, and we're in chapter 18. Genesis 18 starts, The Lord appeared to him, which is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not, pass your, your ser- do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes, and Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. He took curds and milk and the calf that he had been prepared and set it before them and stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And this, sorry, Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. The men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abram went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do, seeing that Abram shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abram what he has promised him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abram stood before the Lord. And Abram drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you not sweep away the place? Or will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abram answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Would you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And the Lord said, I'll not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, Abram spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I won't do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said again, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he, the Lord, answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abram, and Abram returned to his place. And Heavenly Father, these next couple chapters are going to be tough for some of us. It's a tough, tough word to hear. Um, but I pray, God, that you would be with us this morning. Open up our hearts. Open up our lives. Holy Spirit, come and inspect our ways and direct us to your Son, or to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be these next two weeks uh, looking at Genesis 18 and 19. Um, basically, uh, where we, we're, we're confronted with the story of, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you've heard, possibly, in popular culture, just reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, even if you've not read uh, these two chapters of the Bible yet. It's a pretty familiar story, even culturally, I think, still, where we may not, we, you know, in Canada, many people may not know all of the stories of the Bible, but maybe they've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And maybe it's one of those parts of the Bible that you're not very comfortable with, you were, where you, maybe you've avoided it, because, you know, we who live in Canada, we don't really know what to do with stories of judgment. Maybe the Canadian politeness has, uh, has gotten to us, right? This Canadian politeness that uh, we're all so famous for. And we don't really know what to do with a story in which people are not only judged, but that judgment is executed. And, and people die specifically on account of their sins, their wickedness. And, and so maybe uh, it's been a story where you've not been, maybe you've avoided. But we have to look into this story because judgment is a recurring theme, not only in the book of Genesis, but it's a recurring theme in the Bible. In fact, it's one of the main recurring themes in the Bible, that we will be judged on account of our life, on account of our sins, on account of our wickedness. Uh, it's a recurring theme in Genesis ever since the first chapters, where God instructed Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says on the day, if you were to eat of it, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
One of God's first commandments in the Bible is accompanied by, uh, in respect to judgment. You don't go too far in the Bible before you have God, in fact, judging the entirety of the inhabitants of the earth, save one family, and actually wiping clean the slate of humanity in the flood. You have judgment in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. You've, we've already seen judgment alluded to, for example, in Genesis 15, where God was making the, foretelling the promises to Abraham and saying, actually giving us indication that the Israelites uh, being given over the land of Canaan was also an act of judgment upon the Amorite. As you go through the scripture, you find God actually telling Israel to go and displace the people in the land of Canaan as an act of judgment. It's one of those things that cause us in our moral sense, in our modern sensibilities, to say, what is God doing there? And so we are given this chapter here, particularly in Genesis 18, to pause and to consider God's justice in judgment. And that's what we are going to be looking at today. And it's really important. Abraham asks a question in this text. Abraham asks this question. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And we hear Abraham's question echoed in many modern challenges to the faith. There's a whole movement of people. They are called the New Atheists, Richard Dawkins and uh, Sam Harris and some of these authors where there's actually been a shift in some of the atheistic challenges to the Christian faith. It used to be uh, that the challenges to the faith were generally directed at the truthfulness of Christianity. And one thing that has shifted, and I've read some philosophers and, and, uh, and people who have said the shift actually happened after 9-11. Whereas before 9-11 and kind of the world before 9-11, the, the challenge to the Christian faith was Christianity is not true. But we've been plunged into this new world since then in which the challenge to the faith is not so much about its truthfulness at its heart, but about, is God a moral monster? Is religion, not, not so much about true, but is it moral to be a believer, to believe in this God who would execute judgment in this way? And that's the words that some of these new writers will call God, a moral monster. And that's embedded, that challenge is actually embedded in Abraham's question, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? And just one of the things I would kind of share before we look into this, I want to, if you're here today and you're doubting or you're skeptical, I want to tell you, number one, Abraham is asking the challenging questions for us, and that God does not hide from these challenges. The scripture does not hide from these challenging questions of the faith. And the church, I want to tell you, the church, we're not here to cover up the hard questions. 
In fact, the church actually has the hard questions right in the scripture saying, here they are. We're not burying our head in the sand about them. We actually want to expose ourselves to those hard questions. That's what Genesis 18 does. It says, let's put this out here. Shall not the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And so we're going to be looking at God's justice today. That's where we're going. A couple things. First, as we work our way through this passage, the first thing I want you to see, and we're not going to spend tons of time on this, but that God's justice cannot and is not ever separated from God's mercy. We, in our human thinking, put these different attributes of God in different boxes. Here's an aspect of God's mercy. Here's an aspect of God's justice. And we have other boxes in between. But the scripture places all these attributes in one person, God. And because God is God, you cannot separate the attributes of God out of him. And so his mercy and his justice cannot ever be separated. And in this chapter, the chapter begins with these three interesting beings, these men as they're identified in verse 2, coming to Abraham and Sarah. They, in fact, verse 1 kind of spills the beans for us, in a sense, doesn't it? For the reader, the reader uh, Moses, who's writing this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tips off the reader to say, and the Lord appeared to Abram as he was by the oaks of Mamre. But we're not sure in this passage actually when Abraham understands that he's been giving a divine visitation. Uh, the two other beings are said in, in chapter 19, verse 1, that they're angels, but, but one of the, these three beings that come to visit Abraham seems to be a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord himself. And, and theologians and I don't really know what to do with that other than to, be, to say, wow, and Abraham, even if he doesn't recognize that these are divine beings immediately, he sees them as important, impressive beings because he goes out of the way to say, quick, come here, I want to I wanna, I wanna extend to you the hospitality of my home. And he, he gets them cakes, he kills a calf, he, he just puts out the whole feast for them. Yet what's the purpose of this visit? The, the purpose of this visit seems to be, as we just read through the chapter, seems to be twofold. And in that twofold purpose, I see wedded together this aspect of God's mercy and his justice. I, he, he does come to inform Abraham about the act of judgment he's going to execute toward Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the valley. But the first half of the chapter is taken up with the, the, the other reason why he's here visiting Abram and Sarah which is to assure Abram and Sarah that the son he promised to them in the chapter before, the preceding chapter, to assure them Isaac, whose name means he laughs, is soon to come. And while those two purposes, so the two purposes are to, to, you know, to remind them and to explain, express to them that Isaac is soon to come and to explain to them the this imminent judgment that's going to come upon these cities, while at first they might seem like they're, inter, that they're, they're separate purposes, there is a relationship between the two. Think about that. I'm trying to think about what are the, that relationship. Why is it so significant 
that Sarah has a son in her old age? Is it just that God wants to bless this family with a child? I hope you've been following along enough in the book of Genesis to see that's not what this is about at all. It is a blessing to this family to give them a child in their old age. But the promise of the son who is to come did not originate in Sarah. The promise of the son who is to come originated in the garden when Adam and Eve took from that tree that they were forbidden to eat. God had told them, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They took, they ate, yet instead of God executing his judgment immediately upon them and taking their life from them, God did something else. God, in cursing the serpent who deceived them, promised a deliverer, and the rest of the book of Genesis, and in fact, the entire Old Testament, is consumed with this question of, Having escaped God's immediate judgment and death, when will the Savior come to set things back and redeem? And so we only escape this judgment that is imminent by this Savior who is promised. And that is what is happening as God has been meeting with Abraham and with Sarah and promising the descendant through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so that is how this idea of God's judgment and his mercy are interrelated, even as he comes to visit Abram and Sarah and reveal to him about his imminent judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He is meeting with them to remind them of his effectual promise to provide a deliverer for them. And we'll return to that as we go. But we cannot separate God's justice from his mercy, for it is, in fact, who he is. In the Lord's self-designation, there's there's one time in Scripture. Now, now all of Scripture is God-breathed, right? But there's one time in Scripture where God, with an audible voice, describes himself. It's in Exodus 34, verses 4 and 5. It's some of the most beautiful words in the entire scripture. It is uttered by God himself. Moses says, God, I need to see you. I I don't want to go into the land unless I know you're with me, God. And God, and he says, God, reveal to me your, reveal to me your glory. And God says, well, you can't see my glory because it will, you'll die. I'll show you my back. And so, and so he has Moses standing and only seeing a glimpse of his glory. And As the Lord passes Moses by, he says this, and he says, and he he describes himself in God's own words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The gracious part, the merciful part, yet, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth 
generation. God in his own self-designation says, I am the Lord, merciful and compassionate, but I do not overlook the guilt of the wicked. And so as God reveals his plans to Abraham, he reveals not only of his judgment upon sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, but also of that mercy that is behind this entire promise to give a son who will be Savior. Second, this is the part where I've been a teacher for, I was a teacher, and I, okay, I gotta confess something to you. Sodom, people always look at me weird when I say Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And people look at me like I'm some sort of weirdo. And the reason it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible is because of what happens here in the rest of this chapter. God is concerned that we know him as merciful and just and keep his ways. So the men set up from there and they look down towards Sodom. They've they've gone and they've told Abram and Sarah about Isaac. And Abram went with them to see them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abram shall surely be a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abram what he's promised him. In the midst of this catastrophe, God is concerned that Abraham gets a glimpse of his character. Like, God is going to go down and judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their own sin anyway. But on the way to doing that, he says, should I hide this from Abram? Which means that God actually has a purpose for revealing to Abram what he's about to do. He wants to reveal part of his character in this catastrophe. God is actually using Sodom and Gomorrah as a teachable moment to teach Abraham something about himself so that Abraham can teach his children. Right? God is doing what we call good parenting here in a sense, only far better than anything I could ever imagine. You know, as parents, you look for those teachable moments with your kids. You know, something has happened, and maybe something bad has happened. And as a parent, you don't want to just respond to the bad thing that's happened. You want to use it as a teachable moment, right? So you can train up your kids using even the bad thing that happened. Right? We want to learn from this. And so God is actually using Sodom and Gomorrah here as a teachable moment. Should I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? And he recognizes that Abraham will influence generations of people. And so he says, I need to ensure that Abraham gets the correct picture of who I am and of what I'm doing in judgment because Abraham is going to teach his kids about me. And his kids are going to teach their kids and entire nations. I cannot let them get the wrong idea about who I am and about my purposes and judgment. And so God uses this as a teachable moment with Abraham. And and not only that, we might know who God is in his mercy and his judgment, but that we might trust who he is, trust his mercy and judgment, and that we might follow in his ways. 
Right? God, he says, I, I need to teach Abraham about me so he can teach his kids after him to keep my ways in righteousness and justice. And so that is why this chapter is in the Bible, because God wants to instruct us about who he is, that we might trust in him, that we might walk in his ways. And so God has something to teach us here about justice and mercy. And God's not hiding it from us. It's God who initiates this entire conversation. Right? So we come to the Bible and we think, oh, God, you're, you know, we've been reading God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, and we're like, oh, God, you're a moral monster. You're this, you're this immoral person who doesn't care, and you execute... Ju-. God's like, look, before Richard Dawkins writes his book, let's have a conversation. And he had this conversation like 4,000 years ago. And he, God's like, Abraham, we need to hash this out. You need to know who I am. You need to know my purposes in judgment. You need to know my mercy so you can teach your kids after me so you can walk in my ways. Man, we think, uh, we think that we come up with these, all these new ideas, all these new questions, all these new issues. God anticipates them all. He steps in and he says, hey, let's, let's, don't, don't ever be scared of exploring the hard questions and the hard passages of Scripture. You'll, you'll get gold out of them because you'll see God in them. And so, one thing we need to see about God's justice and how it works here is that God's justice responds to the cry of the oppressed. God tells Abraham, the Lord says to Abraham, the Lord says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. There's something going on here that I don't quite understand. But at least in the book of Genesis and some other places in the Old Testament, we get at least, and I don't know how metaphorical this is, but we get kind of this picture of God in his throne room. And he knows everything that's going on. He knows everything that's going on on our planet. He is omniscient, right? He knows all things. But when the cry of people come up before him, it's as if, they, it's as if they're echoing and resounding in his chamber in heaven. And the cry is pictured as, as coming up before the Lord. And there's some things about this cry that you should know. Number one, this cry is a cry that connects. What I mean is, when this cry is out- uttered, when this outcry is uttered, God hears it. I mean, we've already seen that in the wilderness with Hagar, right? She's crying, and, and, and God comes to him and, and her and says, you're going to have a son, and you're going to call him Ishmael, because God hears, and I have heard your cry. That was just a couple chapters ago. But this idea that the cry comes up before God in heaven. In Exodus 3, 7, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. God hears our cry. These are cries that connect. They are cries that contend. It's, it's more than a cry for help this cry. It's a cry for justice. It's a cry for God. As the psalmist says, how long, God? How long? 
How long before you avenge us? How long before you, you deal with our oppressors? How long, God? It's a, it's a cry that contends for justice. In Exodus 22, verses 22, do not take it. This is part of the law that God gave the Israelites. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. In fact, if you go on this passage, it goes on and actually speaks even more of what God will do to them. If his people would participate in that sort of injustice, that the cry would go up contending before God for justice. In the New Testament, the same uh, kind of concept is explained. If you just thought this is just an Old Testament thing, listen to James in the New Testament. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord of hosts. And he speaks judgment on them too. God hears the cry of the oppressed. It's a cry that connects. It's a cry that contends. And it's a cry that compels. Listen to what God says here. I will go down and see. He said this also in Genesis 11.5 when they, they had built this tower in their pride. They built this tower up before the Lord. And God says there again, I will go down there and see. Parents, you know this cry. I used to, I gave, I gave part of the sermon before and I talked about how when I was in seminary, my office was right, you know, had a window outside and sometimes my daughter Aiko would go and play outside and she'd play with one of her friends and I could use Noemi now, she does the same thing. And you hear, parents, you know your kids' cries and you know when they just fell down and scraped their knee and they're crying and you know that, you know, in a second the kids will shift their focus to something else and they'll get back up, and they'll run. And so when you hear your kids cries, you're working on the computer or something, you hear your kids cry, you think for a while, and you say, is that something I need to deal with, or is it just something that's going to, you know? But then you hear that cry that compels you to move. Right? You hear that cry that says, all right, I'm getting up and doing something about this. And that's what this cry is. This is the cry that God literally says, I need to get up, go down, and see what this is all about. Now, God's is omniscient, so I don't know how that works. But, but I'll tell you one thing. It would be a fearful thing for God to personally have to come and look into your sin. Would it not? <laughs> I mean, I could have used, I talked about my kids crying. Sometimes you hear your kids fighting. And you know when you need to get up and intervene. And generally it's not a good thing when mom and dad have to get up and intervene. God's justice responds to the cry of the oppressed. And, and here's the thing for our modern age and for us you know, who live in Canada, this very polite country, God's justice is a very good thing. It's so, it's so easy for us to look at parts of Scripture and say, well, God, you're pretty harsh. But then we cry out for justice in our own day. And I'll, and I'll tell you what happens. Everybody wants God to be just about everybody else's sin. 
right? If you're politically left, you want justice from the oppressed and the oppressors. If you're politically left, like you, you know, wage inequality and, and, and inequality gets you really fired up and you're like, we need justice, we need justice. And if you're on the right, Politically, you're thinking, oh, we need justice for the unborn, and we need justice, and everybody cries out for justice, but everybody yells at each other, because we do not want to see, we do not want to think that we are the ones to whom God's justice is keyed. We do not want to look at our own heart, and we don't want to look at our own wickedness. We do not want justice for ourselves. We just want justice for everybody else that we see, and, and God's word does not give us that option. God's word does not give us the option. We can have oppressors on the right and on the left. God's word does not, God does not care. He's no respecter of persons. And God's justice is a good thing because wickedness and evil are real things in this world. I, I don't understand how you could go through life without a worldview in which you're actually seeing that wickedness and evil are real things. They, they are real things that we experience every week. They are real things that we experience every day, whether it's inequality or whether it's murder or whether it's lust or whatever it is. And if we're honest, we all, we, and if we're honest, and the Bible is frankly honest with us, it says we all stand under the wrath of a holy and just God. And the cries of the result of our wickedness are reaching up before God's throne room in heaven. We'll keep on moving on. Some of you guys want me to tie that back. I'm going to let that sit for a while. God's judgments are restrained, but they are rightly earned. So there's something in this story about Sodom that shows an amazing restraint on God's behalf. So, so if you think about what is the sin of Sodom, sometimes we get really interested in calling people names have to do with Sodom. We get so excited about what are the sins of Sodom. Let me show you what the sins of Sodom was. Sodom's sin was great wickedness. They're introduced in the Bible. Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They are, they are described as rebellious from, the, from, the, from their first time they come on the scene. For 12 years they've been subject to Ketalomar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Now, now that, not all rebellion is wrong, but Isaiah tends to bring out, well, they were proud in their rebellion. Their partiality witnesses against them. They proclaim their sins like Sodom. They do not hide them. Woe to them, they have brought the evil upon themselves. So there's pride of Sodom. They are idolatrous in Genesis, or Deuteronomy 32 in the context of speaking about idolatry of Babylon. Moses writes, their rock is not like our rock. Their little gods are not like our big god is what Moses says. Our enemies are by themselves. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. So, so in their idolatry, they're, they're, they're basically connected to the same vine that Sodom and Gomorrah was, idolatry. Sodom's sin was hypocritical, spiritual leadership. We're getting closer to home. Jeremiah says, in the prophets of Jerusalem, I, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one 
turns from his wickedness. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Sodom's sin was lack of charity and greed. Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Surplus, that's supposed to say surplus. I don't know why it doesn't. Surplus of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. And Sodom's sin was indeed sexual perversion. Just as Jude in the New Testament says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued a natural desire, serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The point of this is, listen, Sodom was full of sinners who sinned greatly. Sodom has become, in our word, in our day, a byword for a particular kind of sin, and we're not the first ones to make that mistake. Ezekiel said this to Israel. Wasn't your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth on the day of your pride before your wickedness was recovered? Basically, the Israelites were saying, oh, they were calling people Sodomites or Sodom people who were wicked, wicked sinners. And Ezekiel's saying, you used to use that word to describe other people, but then your wickedness was uncovered and now you have become an object of reproach. Those all around you despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abomination, declares the Lord. And so this is the point that I was making before. We are so very good at seeing and naming the sins in others. And one of the ways that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as examples to us and are used as examples to Israel and to the church in Jude are to recognize that we should all see ourselves in their sin lest we have our own wickedness and sin uncovered. And and imagine the restraint of God seeing this wickedness multiply in front of him. And the restraint of God. So that other passage we looked at in Genesis 15 where it says, Know for certain that your descendants will go down to a land that is not their own and they'll be afflicted for 400 years because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. What it seems to be is at least collectively or or through a society like a city or a nation, it seems to be that God restrains his judgment until the point that it could be said that the sin of the people has become complete. In before the fall, for example, or sorry, before the flood, in Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the description before God stepped in and judged. We need to take care to understand that we are not unlike Sodom, lest our sins be uncovered. We need to take that warning. We also need to understand a little bit of God's judgment is that God restrains himself in judgment until there comes a point at which God intervenes. And I don't know what that point is, and you don't know what that point is. None of us know what that point is, but we have seen nations rise and fall, and we have seen cities come and go. 
until that point, what we see, so this is part of this theology of judgment that goes through the whole Old Testament. It's important to know. God, until that point when the sin of the Amorite becomes complete or, or he works in with Sodom and Gomorrah or he removes the children of Israel from the land or he sends the fire upon Nineveh, God continually restrains his judgment. He is long-suffering and often sends prophetic words to those people, calling them to repent. And so the point is that God does not want to see these nations and these cities destroyed he wants to see them repent and turn to him. It's why he sends Jonah to Nineveh. He sends Jonah to Nineveh that Nineveh might repent. And Jonah's message, Jonah doesn't want to see Nineveh repent. Jonah's the worst prophet of the Bible. He's terrible. He's like us. He doesn't want to see his enemies repent and receive mercy. He says that at the end of the book. He says, God, I knew you to be merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He repeats God's words back to himself and God, because I knew you were like that, God, I didn't want to go. I wanted to see them all die. And God sends Jonah to Nineveh and Jonah's, Jonah's like, all right, God, you sent me here. I got one message. Hey, everybody, you're all going to die. That's what Jonah preached. He literally preached, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. You're all going to die. He did not want to see them. He is the worst, most hateful prophet but God used him and somehow the nation repented and God relented from overthrowing them in calamity. And I do not understand the mercy and the love of a God like that. I don't. I don't get the long-suffering of a God like that. We, we either do not want justice at all because we want to be held righteous and account in our own sin. We don't want justice at all. Or we want justice immediately on our enemies. And somehow God does neither because he is gracious, merciful, and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And he restrains himself, not watching that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And God's judgments are just, for God is a just and merciful judge. So this is where it gets to the heart of this passage that Abraham draws near and Abraham says, listen to him. Listen to this question, Abraham. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, that's not like you to do that. Would you do it? Suppose there's 50 righteous in the city. Will you sweep the place away and not spare it for the 50 righteous? And listen, twice Abraham says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous would fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous in the city, well then the of the Sodomites has not yet been completed. I will relent. I will spare the whole place for their city. And, and, and Abraham comes back and he says, well, what about if five people are lacking? What if, what if we can't find 50? What if there's five short? Would you spare the city then? And God says, Abraham, yes. And Abraham says, I, I can't believe I'm talking to you. I'm dust and ashes. I can't believe this to the Lord. But, but what if 40 people, God? What if 40 people are left? And God says, I'll spare it. And Abraham says, 35? And God says, yes. Abraham says, 30? And God says, yes. And he says, 20? And God says, yes. And finally, Abraham says, 10? And God says, yes, Abram, I will spare the city for ten righteous people. And the amazing part about this whole chapter is that Abraham stops asking. 
What does that mean? It means that Abram is satisfied that God's, in God's judgment, God is remembering mercy. It means that Abram is satisfied that the judge of the whole earth is doing what is right. It means that, that, that God has gone far beyond Abraham's conception and understanding of how this balance of mercy and justice works itself out. And Abram says, God, yeah. And he stops asking. He's, he's satisfied. I, that's why I love this chapter of the Bible. God did not have to put chapter 18 in. He could have just went, told, told Abraham about uh, Isaac's going to come next year. And then they leave and they go to Sodom and suddenly the next thing Abraham sees is he's heard this word about Isaac being born next year and then he just sees the brimstone falling. And this chapter's here for one reason. is to answer the question, should not the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And the point is Abraham at the end of the chapter is satisfied. And I hope that we would be too. What does that mean for us? The first would be this, and I think it's come through the message so far. If there's, you know, heed the warning that God's judgments are real. It is appointed to us once to die, and after that, the judgment. God, in his mercy, gives you breath every day that you might call out to him, cry out to him, and know him for who he is. God, Lord, Savior, Redeemer. If you are here today and you can take a breath, there is time for you. If you, if you walked in here today, you're not yet a Christian, there is time for you today to heed God's warning of the coming judgment and to repent. If, you, if God has given you a workplace to go to or a school to go to where there are other human beings around you, God has given you, church, an opportunity to go to people and to let them know about this merciful yet just God. To go to them and to share with them like there is a judgment coming. And to those who are oppressed and weighed down to say there is a Savior deliverer. Yet you also must turn and repent and place your faith and your hope in him. Heed God's warning that his judgments are real. He is long-suffering, but there will come a day when his timeline ends. The second would be to pray for our lost city and to those who are entrenched in it. Again, I don't know if you're on the political right or the left, and I don't really care at this moment. <laughs> but I would say this. Everybody around us sees that there's some really, really terrible and wrong things happening in the world around us. And I hear it as I go and talk to the coffee shops. You can be on the left and you say, oh, the sky's falling. You can be on the right and you can say, oh, the sky's falling. And we as Christians look around and we say, oh, the sky is well, still held up by God, but it's getting dark. 
I was uh, watching this Netflix documentary. It was so this this Christian film com company got uh, commissioned by Netflix to make a documentary for Netflix. I forget what it's called, and it's probably a good thing I forget what it's called. So it, it was one of those challenging things to watch. But they went with a camera crew, and they went down to, um, I think it was Fort Lauderdale or Virginia Beach, one of the spring break destinations. And always in my mind, in my imagination, when I think of Sodom and Gomorrah, I, I can never imagine that people would actually be like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, I, I can never actually imagine, like, you know, in the next chapter where we had, they beat down the door saying, bring those guys out that we might sleep with them. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. And I watched this documentary of these college students at spring break, and I was horrified. They literally are chanting that these young women will remove their clothes. They're literally chanting and, and encouraging unspeakable things happening in public. And it's been a while since I've been in university, I guess. But I was like, how in the world is this happening? I, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine a holy God looking down on his creation, these, these people he loves, who he created and loves, and seeing them tear each other apart in their lust. And I, I, can't, I can't understand it. It helps me to understand what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit better. But we have a city, we have a world all around us that I have no idea how far we are from judgment. To be honest. And, and one thing I see in this passage is Abraham interceding. Interceding on behalf of those around him. On behalf of... It's interesting, he's literally interceding that the wicked might be spared on account of the righteous. Right? He's, he's praying for the, there to be righteous in the city, and he's praying that the wicked would be spared for their sake, so that God might not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And just this passage, one of the things that I, I hope will inspire you this week is to go into your workplaces and go into your schools, go into your neighborhoods, go into your prayer closets, and intercede intercede, pray to the Lord, number one, that he might send you into that dark place because you're already there. That he might give you boldness to be a light to those people, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, who he has commanded you to love with a sacrificial, Christ-inspired love. And pray you might say, oh, they're so far, they'll never turn, they'll never come. The amazing thing about that documentary is once this filmmaker, what he started to do was he started to grab these guys who were, who were just, just literally in one second speaking about how much they were objectifying and terrorizing these women, and then he, they would bring these young men out of the crowds and into a hotel room, and they'd say to them, he'd ask them a question, he'd say, is that what you really think of those young women? Do you really think that they're just objects to be used and thrown away? Do you... Do you have any desire for a relationship? Do you have any desire to be here? And these young men individually would say, yes, I hate what I do when I'm out there with those guys. And they would start to weep because they knew it was sin. They knew it was wickedness and they went along with it. And you might look around your, your school and you might look around your neighborhood. You might work around your workplace and say, these people do not need Jesus. They don't they, I know they need Jesus, but they don't think they need Jesus. 
There's no way they will ever let their guard down. There's no way their hearts will ever be softened. That's why you intercede. That's why you pray. And you cry out to the true son of Abraham. That's what this whole Isaac promise is about, is that this son of Abraham, this Isaac, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of David, Jesus Christ has come. And he revealed on the cross the fullness of God's love and the fullness of his justice. He bore the wrath of God that was directed toward us in our sin. He bore it all on himself in our place, in our stead. The innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. On the cross is where God's love, his mercy, and his justice meet. And he died, he rose again from the dead, and God raised him into the heavenlies where he sits at the Father's right hand, living to make intercession for us. It's that he is the one standing in Abraham's place. He is the one praying on our behalf. He is the one, he is the one in his long suffering withholding judgment that more could be saved. He is an amazing God. If you're here today, you do not know him. I want you to know this. Every breath you take is a gift from him that you might turn it back into praise and worship of him. This is, Solomon and Gomorrah is not a story to condemn us. It's a story that might be directed us to him that we might be saved. If you're here today, you don't know him today, I pray you could come, bow your knee before him, bow your heart before him, pray, God, I need you. God, I have sinned. God, I am sorry. God, I need you. Please forgive me. Please save me. It's how you can start just by calling out to him. You cry out to him, and he'll hear you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this message in Genesis 18. That this chapter that didn't have to be in the Bible, except for you said, shall I hide from them what I'm about to do? That you determined that we, didn't, we needed to know about your justice, and we needed to know about your mercy, and that we needed to know about your judgment. And I pray, God, for each one of us in here that we might hear and we might see you and that we might know you and that we might trust you and that we may then live just and honest lives in front of you. We cannot do this in ourselves. All of us like sheep have turned to our own way. We have, we've all gone to our own path and our own direction. Yet you've sent your son into this world to run after us, to seek and to save the lost to die on the cross on our behalf, that your justice might be satisfied even while you extend your mercy to any who turn and place our faith in you. I pray for anyone in here today who does not yet know you as their Lord and Savior, that they may come today to know you. And I pray, God, that you fill us with your spirit, that we might be bold as we go out into this world around us, this world that is rapidly, rapidly heading toward your judgment that we might go empowered by your spirit to save the lost. In your name we pray. Amen.